politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and beleaguered second class citizens to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for Thursday, June 11th. And friends, let me tell you, we are indeed second class citizens in our own country. If you are not one of the favored classes by the masters of the universe, the corporate, political, media culture, you don't matter. You don't have rights. You don't have the bare minimum rights while their protected classes have extra rights, including the right to murder, maim, destroy, destroy monuments, block traffic. And as we mentioned yesterday, who is standing up for the silenced and silent majority? Today, I really want to give a very broad, deep, long look at the last few years as we're in the final half a year or so of Trump's first term as our side of the aisle obsesses about one thing and one thing only, getting Trump reelected without any understanding of what does a second term look like? We first have to look at what happened, what went wrong and what you know, went right in the first term. And we'll do that through the prism of also some of the news of the day, of, of, of the day as we always do. Not going to ignore that. It's very dark and gloomy here where I am, stuck in my house, my home office. And I'm stuck here not just because of a partial lockdown now, but because it's scary. Where are you going to go and not get overrun? I-40... Winston-Salem, North Carolina, it was blocked. No police in sight. Monuments have been destroyed. They took over several blocks in Seattle, just took it over. Like a bunch of terrorists took it over. No cops in sight. Now look, I don't blame the cops because there is no upside and only downside to them trying to get involved because it will provoke violence and they're going to have to defend themselves. So they're like, screw it. Nobody's standing up for them with the blood libel. So, you know, I understand it. But here's what I don't understand. And this is the subject of today's show. Trump tweets out finally about the Seattle stuff. And he tweets these like random things every few hours. Law and order. Uh, you know, those uh, who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. I think that's in reference to the taking down of monuments. Like, do you get the impression that after three and a half freaking years, this guy is like, he's like a cable news commentator. He's like, he's like me. I mean, he sounds like me, except he's the president. Whatever happened to using Title 10? At least if you don't want to go the route of bringing in active duty military, at least Title 10 to federalize the National Guard to at least secure the roads certain occupied areas, monuments, things like that, targeted. You don't have to, you know, police the streets, but targeted things like that. Oh, whoops, I forgot. We got President Jared Kushner. Talk about that with our special guest. But I first want to just go through a couple things before that. There are tons of videos just from the last few days of terrible, terrible, brutal beatings, 
taking place all over the country. Every single one is perpetrated by usually a mob of black individuals. Sometimes the victims are black, often they're white. Why is there no impetus for justice for those cases? I don't believe in judging people as groups and having group grievances because of one injustice and targeting an entire group because of the perpetrator happened to be, you know, the same race. But according to the line we are being told, don't we all have the right to riot by a factor of a million? Given all the crime that is committed and brutal, brutal crime. We had the one in my home state, Ocean City, Maryland. Dozens of them surrounded a white kid and just beat him nearly to death. These lynchings happen every day. Nothing is done about it. And instead, the racism is projected the other way. Typical blood libel. Like I told you, this is not about the police. This is about private citizens. You will be made to care. If you're one of those that's like, look, Daniel, I, look, let's just give them what they want. I'm scared. I don't want to be called racist. You cannot run fast and far enough. You cannot find any place to hide from this. It will get you. This is a story out of my uh, northwest, Seattle. The University of Washington Athletic Department issued a statement Tuesday that two dancers who had been cut from next year's team would be invited back and there would be a leadership change in the UW dance program. Basically, there happened to be two female black dancers that didn't make the cut. They were brought back and the woman who didn't hire them or didn't you know, approve them, she was fired from her job. Okay? No, no evidence that she targeted them or anything. I mean, just like anything else. They just didn't make the cut. This is going to affect so many aspects of life that now anyone who happens to be black, you can't enforce meritocracy. Like you can't. They're white. I mean, they're black. No matter what, you have to hire them. Or if they're hired, no matter what they do, if they're bad, if they happen to be black, you can't fire them. Is this the fulfillment of Dr. King's dream? To judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin? A meritocracy, that's what he want. I mean, that's what he wanted. That's what we want. We've always wanted that. Most blacks who I know want that as well. I mean, you, you can't have a civilization like this. I mean, I mean, again, two people could play this game. What if I went around and said, hey, I'm Jewish. Anyone who's Jewish, you know, you can't punish them if they do a crime. They get to do crime and not get punished themselves. You have to hire them for anything under any circumstance. You, you can't fire them because they suffered 2,000 years of persecution. Imagine if I started doing that. It, it, it is no... Worse than what's happening now. That's for sure. But there's nobody guarding the gates. There's nobody guarding the gates. Before we bring on our guests, I just want to point out a, mix, a mixture of two stories. 
I want to juxtapose two things to demonstrate how we are second-class citizens. We are strangers in our own country. Rights have been flipped on their head. Criminals victim, victims criminal. Illegal alien is an American. Americans are illegal aliens. Two stories I want to share with you. You might have seen the media is getting back to coronavirus and saying, oh, there's a spike in California and Texas and Arizona and and North Carolina. All these states, they opened up. There's a spike in cases. There's even a spike in hospitalizations. And they're back to that garbage. Now, the problem is they set so many fires, it takes time to put out one and then you move to the next. I'm not going to get into the science and math, the virology or just the observations of what's going on. Um, there's about five different fa- factors that demonstrate the lie and the obfuscations, the typical garbage. You know, for example, the New Daily hospitalizations are, are way down. It's a cumulative growth because basically you have a bunch of people in the hospital. Ba- basically, hospitalizations in general have doubled in, in most of these states um, since April because April was unprecedented. Ironically, nobody was in the hospital. Because if you were in New York, New Jersey, that had a lot of COVID patients, you didn't have COVID patients, but you had the same degree of panic that kept people away, plus the elective procedures that were shut down. They, you, wouldn't, you didn't have people coming to the hospital. Now you have people flooding the hospital because not just the regular ones, but making up for the past and people that suffered ailments from untreated uh, illnesses are now coming in. That's number one. Number two is unlike before, we now have rapid universal testing. So we test every organism that comes into a hospital for COVID. So as we said, COVID's much more widespread, asymptomatic, and there's nothing you can do to stop it, basically. And that's what's happening. Tons of people who come in for chest pains or even trauma, they test them in the course of their admission and they find that they are um, COVID positive. So that's counted in the cumulative beds taken up by people who tested positive. But in terms of people who are admitted for COVID to the ER because they couldn't breathe, COVID was attacking their lungs, it's it's way down. That's the the central lie. There's several lies mixed together. But there is one element that is bringing in a little bit more of a more concerning element. And that is this. Both the New York Times and Washington Post cover this. But now I hear it from my border agents. Despite the so-called promise to close the border, remember that? Dual citizens and green card holders, let's assume they're not illegal aliens for now. Let's assume we're stopping that. But what we know for sure is that dual citizens and LPRs are coming from Mexico because Mexico is a dumpster fire. Baja California has a lot of problems. Remember, you know, it was Asia, then Europe, then America. Latin America is kind of the final frontier. So they're still more at the peak level. So they have horrible health care. They're coming over the border. Okay? They're coming over the border. And they're flooding hospitals in the Southwest. That's why you're seeing it in the Southwest. So think about this sick irony, how to marry the, the, the two issues. This is peak 2020. This exemplifies what you and I are up against. So we're second-class citizens. We are locked down while they get to come over. And I don't care if you're a dual citizen. Well, Daniel, if I'm a dual Mexican-American citizen, I have a right to come in. 
well, I'm an American citizen and I have a right to do a lot of things to travel freely within the United States that I don't have the right to do. I mean, this is what we're saying, a pandemic, we're shutting the border. I mean, it's not it's not even an immigration issue. It's even if you're you're an American citizen. I mean, tough luck. I mean, and certainly certainly uh, if you're just a green card holder. But no, they're brought in. So we are now counting other countries' COVID cases to then be used as a pretext to further lock us down when the way this is coming into the country is by not doing the lockdown that we all agree we should have done, which is the border. That, my friends, is this government. And again, the last time I checked, President Donald J. Trump is the president of the United States. I am sick of excuses. If you're going to pass the buck down, then resign and let someone come in who will fulfill the promises, not just tweet about them and then do the opposite and hire Brooke Rollins and Jared Kushner and Jerome Smith to screw us and pretty much everyone in that White House. It would be easier to count the people who are with us. That's number one. Connected to that is this. So we have a scenario where we're locked down. Our civil rights are taken out. We have no access to the courts. The courts are ignoring our pleas. But the worst illegal alien criminals, criminals of other countries, are getting standing to sue us in court. And now a New York judge ruled yesterday that ICE cannot arrest people at courthouses, illegal aliens at courthouses. That's like me. They have as much power to say that as I have power to say, you know, Trump can't have soldiers in Afghanistan. There's something called a supremacy clause. The federal government has the right to enforce his laws. It's no different from a judge somehow saying that you can't, DA can't arrest federal drug offenders at courthouses, ATF can't arrest gun felons at courthouses, the U.S. Marshals can't arrest, you know, other, you know, people uh, charged with federal crimes. There's, I mean, it's, it's just made up. Courthouses. And courthouses is the last line of defense because the sanctuaries are blocking them from the police stations. So this is the last line of defense before they get bonded out. Do you know that a number of the plaintiffs in this case, they're not just illegal aliens. Some might be illegal immigrants. Do you know what they are? They're sex offenders. Sex offenders get standing in the courts to overturn our constitution, our sovereignty, our statutes as plainly as written, nullify the law. But we don't get standing when our religious liberty, civil liberty, free, uh, unrestricted movement, businesses get shut down. Again, we have a world perfectly upside down right now. It's actually perfect. There's a theory to it. It's very consistent. But again, notice how we are worse off with immigration enforcement. And I'm sick of hearing this Republican White House line, the Democrats want to defend the police. It's the same thing with abolish ICE. They're never going to succeed and actually never seriously going to push, at an, especially at a national level, to fully abolish ICE, abolish the police. That's a fake fight. What they're doing is they're getting the courts and other ways to essentially abolish their purview. 
and it's parallel both with the police domestically and with ICE with immigration enforcement. They'll get their salaries. They'll they'll wear their badge and have their institution, their building. They won't be able to do anything. ICE's purview is more limited now than under Obama. I know you could say, well, it's the sanctuary city's fault. It's the court's fault. But we've been talking for three and a half years about how Trump needs to fight that and, and the specific things he needs to do, and he doesn't do them. So I don't care why we're worse off, but we are worse off than where we were four years ago. With that, my friends, I want to get to our next guest. Pedro Gonzalez is assistant editor at American Greatness, one of the few good websites that is actually putting out substantive information and really thought-provoking articles on where we are as conservatives. Where are we? What have we gotten the last few years? Where are we headed? Pedro wrote an article yesterday that really caught my attention because he sounded like me. And frankly, there are very few people that sound like me, which is why you guys tune in, that, you know, is not trying to tear down the president and criticize him just as an end to itself, but we're actually trying to build him up to fulfill his own mandate, which will be good for his reelection. But more importantly, there's got to be an end beyond the election. A lot of people are telling me, well, Daniel, you know, I I know why the left is doing this, you know, lockdown and then the riots. They want to block Trump from winning. Well, yeah, that's the short term. But unlike our folks, they're actually not short-sighted. There's more than that. They want to remake the country. It's not just about the election. It's what they want to do with it. And it's frankly what they accomplish, whether they're in power or not. They'll, you know, if they're not in power and president, they'll use Congress. If it's not there, they'll use the courts. If it's not there, they'll use the states. They'll use the culture. They will get what they need done, and Republicans will facilitate it and back it, legitimize it. And at its core, that is why we elected Donald Trump. We were sick of this, like, yes, yes, there's valid grievances. Yes, we need to do what you guys want to do, albeit we'll have the conservative alternative. No, it was every day of the week to have a competing agenda where we focus not just a different way of looking at their um, issue of the day, but focus on our issues of the day. Actually, there's victims of crime that we need legislative fixes for them. We need legislative immigration reform fixes for the American people. We need welfare reform for the American taxpayer. But on issue after issue after issue, we are way behind. And now, I mean, when you would have told me, oh my gosh, Hillary might win and she might become president, it was scary. Frankly, in my worst nightmare, I could never have envisioned the worst confluence of tyranny and anarchy. Tyranny for us, with the lockdowns that are still largely in place, the insane degree of economic damage, small businesses that are the bulwark against tyranny, especially with the corporate world getting bought into the cultural Marxism. The beacon of prosperity, rugged individualism, independence. About a third of them were destroyed. 41% of black businesses, by the way, destroyed. Black-owned businesses. Republicans don't have a message for that. They're continuing to validate and legitimize both the undergirding of the riots and the lockdowns. The two issues of our time, really in many ways, the linchpin of civilization, issues we could have never imagined until recently. There is no competing bold contrast there just isn't so pedro wrote an article as rome burns at this rate 
President Trump's base stands to lose no matter the election's outcome. Very thought-provoking. And with us to discuss this is Pedro himself. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, uh, you know, I honestly never followed your work, but now I will (laughs) because I was like, man, someone else gets it. So I want to first, you go very much into detail, particularly about jailbreak, which I've been talking about on this show for years um, and and what has gotten Trump to flip 180 degrees on that. I want to get back to that, but I just want to give a 30,000 foot view first that, you know, it's kind of like Animal Farm. You know, where you start out with a revolution, you start out with a certain cause. And you look back four years ago, and it's like everyone's saying, oh my gosh, we got to win this election. And it almost seems like with everything, both from the Trump supporters and the president himself, as if he's not the president. As if he's like, you know, this is like 2016. He's like a cable news commentator. He's a Twitter commentator. He's a bystander. Hey, like, look, look, look at what's happening there. You know, there's some rioting. Hey, you know, they're tearing down statues. Hey, uh, you know, uh, look, they just took over, you know, Seattle. Look at what these governors are. Jay Inslee is pathetic. And at the end of the day, he is president. He has been president. On immigration, we are worse off than we've ever been. We had the worst border crisis ever. It took 18 months until they finally did what we told them to do to clamp down on it. But even then, interior enforcement is lower than it was under Obama. Some of that's because of the sanctuaries and the courts. But again, that is also he's not doing the things we demanded to push back against that. You look at crime and holy smokes. I mean, wow. I mean, that's just Orwellian what happened there. Um, You know, he ran on Reagan's platform even tougher than Reagan. And we got worse than we would have had under Jeb Bush. Then you look at the debt and dependency in this country. I mean, the bills he just signed and beat up Thomas Massey for trying to block. Um, they they make the stimulus under Obama look like nothing. The degree of programs that I see in my state, uh, three free meals a day for non-means tested, just out of control. The debt is unconscionable. Issue after issue... And, you know, my problem is they have this litany of things that they feel the president did. And and some of them are good. But if you look at them, they're either symbolic, ephemeral. Some of them were countermanded by the courts and our inability to fight judicial supremacism. Am I missing something? Am I being too harsh here? No, I think you're right. I think uh, there is certainly this um, difference in mentalities where we sort of play to own the libs. Uh, you know, these these sort of uh, small victories that in the long run won't really mean anything while our enemies are playing for keeps. You know, they're in the business of fundamentally and irreversibly transforming the country. And um, I, I, you you already hit a lot of good nails on the head. Um, it, it was often said that a strength of the president is the fact that he is a businessman, not a politician. And in some ways, that is a strength. He talks straight, and I think he thinks straight, right? Um, Kind of a no-nonsense guy in the way that he likes to operate. Well, the problem is, in D.C., nothing is straightforward. Uh, Everything moves sideways, including the people around you. And in D.C., personnel is policy. You know, the president has a lot of things going on, and, and he has to trust that the people around him are not just knowledgeable, but also that they're going to help him uh, carry out the mandate that he was given in 2016. But that's not the case. A lot of the people that he is surrounded with 
are basically establishment creatures, and they promote other people like themselves who have their interests and who have establishment interests. They promote them into positions of, uh, of influence to basically kind of surround the president with a bunch of, like, like you said, people who would fit in swell in either a Bush or Obama administration. And this is, I think, Trump's biggest weakness is that he doesn't seem like he understands the level of, uh, of I guess, corruption that he, ha- that he is surrounded with right now. I mean, from his own son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to people like uh, Brooke Rollins, who's now the acting head of the Domestic Policy Council, these are not people that have a lot of love for the agenda that he ran on or, frankly, his voters. Um, by all accounts, many of these people hold Trump's base in contempt. They think of them as rubes, as bigots, you know, people that don't know any better, that they, they need uh, these sort of Bushite wonks to give them what they want, you know, uh, to give them what they really need and give it to them good and hard. So here's what I don't understand. And, and, and let's unravel these people one at a time. We'll talk about um, I want you to talk about, you know, Rollins and Jerome Smith and and, uh, you know, some of the other guys you mentioned and, and just their backgrounds and where they came from. But let's start out with the ace of spades. OK, Jared Kushner. Here's what I don't understand. I could understand and I've defended not really defended the president, but I've said all along, I'm not into this one man show. You know, oh, yeah, let's just put our hopes in one man. As you know, from my body of work, I'm into the fact that you have to build a movement that is consistent every single day, pushing our agenda, just like the left does. And, you know, it's it's very hard that if McConnell and McCarthy and and all this, certainly the deep state and then the other people he was convinced to appoint are bad that, you know, there's nobody pushing on his side on cable news, Fox, these other places. They're not pushing the narrative. Often they're on the other side of the narrative. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. He wanted to fight, but this is where it is, so he'll just give in to it. But what I cannot wrap my arms around is Jared Kushner, right? The president knows that. I know from private conversations that people have had with him. He fully, he even jokes about it sometimes, you know, that, that Jared and Ivanka are liberals. He, he fully gets that. Uh, Reagan had liberal children, and that that's fine. You could even be close with them, closer than Reagan was with his children. That's beautiful. That's that's great. But you don't bring them into your administration, and then literally at every turn now, you know, he wanted to end the lockdowns. He thought it was stupid. Jared was for it. He wanted to actually bring in the military to deal with the rioting. Jared said no. But how do you – at the end of the day, like – how do you defend that? I mean, either you're the president or not. How do we get in the psychology of the president with that? Right. No, that, that is a very good point. And at the end of the day, Trump chooses to listen to people like Kushner. So, you know, ultimately it is on him. Now, I've also been wondering this, too, because uh, from everything I've heard, Jared is not particularly bright. Uh, in fact, he, he seems supremely ignorant. And in, in sometimes, I mean, if you, you hear the way he talks about stuff like no cash uh, bail reform, uh, which has proven pretty disastrous amid the riots because what's what's happened is that all the people that we arrested for rioting and looting almost immediately got released because of no cash bail and then went right back to looting. And then the next day, Jared's on TV talking about how it keeps communities safe. So he doesn't strike me as particularly bright, but Trump keeps listening to him and he keeps him around. And the only thing I can come up with, and it's not a great answer, is Ivanka. 
that Ivanka is probably his favorite child. And uh, he knows that getting rid of Jared would be a blow to her pride. And I, I think that there's a real problem now that it, 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 it's in its biggest form is his own family that's in the White House with him that are holding him back. And it, 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 this is just a, I think it's like an Achilles heel that probably a few people saw coming um, right after he got elected. But I don't think people realize, I think maybe, you know, oh, they're liberals. Uh, that's scary, but he'll probably get rid of them. I don't think anyone saw that he was going to elevate them to the uh, to the level that they they have been elevated, and that he was going to listen to them um, to to the degree that he has. Because it seems to me that everything else you throw in there is like drinking coffee with a fork. I mean, we all knew Mark Meadows. I I mean I I'm not going to breach private con- you know trust the private conversations, but you know we we talked for years about jailbreak together. And it like crushed my heart, literally watching him march there with Tim Scott, um, who has never seen a criminal he didn't want to release from prison with Jared Kushner. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, you know, if you would have told me three years ago, Mark Meadows would be chief of staff, I would have been dancing on the rooftops like it doesn't get better than that. But it's meaningless because it seems like Kushner is the ad hoc de facto chief of staff. I mean, he pretty much decides everything. Maybe there were a couple of times the president did ignore him. Um, but I mean, doesn't this get back to the fact that one of the things that I find most frustrating is that I, I, as you well know, I, I predicted this. I mean, it it was part of why I was one of the few, you know, people that kind of have this brand of conservatism that I actually did not support Trump. I supported Ted Cruz. I thought on net, you know, there were issues with him, but on net, I thought we would actually get more exactly as I predicted happen. But as soon as he was elected, rather than just saying, Hey, see, I told you so I'm being obnoxious about it. I really tried to work to craft ideas, talk to people in the administration, really try to make it that I was wrong. Cause I, you know, I, I don't care about being right. I want, I want his presidency to succeed. And what, the biggest thing that surprised me is that under my worst case scenario, he was going to be a fraud. Okay. And I actually would have felt better if he would be a fraud. Cause then what are you going to do? I mean, you're, you're out of luck, but what, what strikes me, and I want to see if you agree with me on this from what I hear from, from people who talk directly to him. I really do think he means what he tweets. I think intuitively he does believe what we do on you know, the race baiting and the crime and the immigration stuff. He does believe that. But absent a movement to go and hold him to it, you know, he's not, there's just no incentive for him to move over. And just opposite, he'll listen. He'll listen if you get in his face. We see that every time. Jeb Bush would never listen to us. He couldn't care less. So isn't that the fatal flaw that the very people that are so obsessively protective of the president are actually harming him? Yes, uh, there is no question. I, 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 I think if you see me on Twitter, you, you've seen me railing against the GOP and, and mainstream conservatives over the last week because, because of this. There's no bigger threat to the mandate that Trump was given than the people that are his apologists right now that he, you know, it's these, uh, plan trusters, um, maybe some of them mean well, but the ones that I think are the, the self-styled intellectuals of this movement, they should know better. And they should know that, like you said, while Trump has good instincts, 
um, if he's not pushed, if there's no countervailing power um, in the form of, let's say, an intellectual base outside the White House to push back on the 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 forces that are kind of pulling him away from his instincts in the form of like people that we talked about, Kushner and Rollins, then he doesn't have any really reason to, I guess, to, to make good on his promises because he knows that there will always be people out there who make a living making excuses for him. And the thing is, is, is they're not making excuses for him. They're not, in a way, they're not, they're not defending um, his policy. They're, they're defending Bushite policy. They're defending policy uh, by people who, by name, you know, they might say, you know, oh, Ivanka's a liberal. But then if Ivanka whispers in Trump's ear, and gets him to to pull back off of something like I don't know ending birthright citizenship, then they'll suddenly turn around and defend Trump's decision to not end birthright citizenship, which was actually Ivanka's decision. I, I'm not saying that's an actual case, but if, or, or, or it's worse than that, example. Pedro. It's worse than that. They'll downright so like with jailbreak, it's like I mean I was like a pariah. You know, there were conservative publications. I won't mention them here, but I think you know what I'm talking about. They would spike columns. You were not allowed to have Reagan's view on crime. You could not deviate from the Soros view on crime. You have Alice Johnson, who has never, never to this day apologized, has never said, even admitted she did anything wrong. Um, She is now at, at a time of the worst drug crisis ever when this administration is obsessing about it, spending billions of dollars on stupid treatment, um, but then eschewing law enforcement. Uh, the cocaine trafficker, she's going to get a prime speaking sp- slot at the GOP convention rather than totally burning down the left on how many African-Americans have been killed from the cocaine trafficking in particular recently. Um, this is what we pander to. This is the party we've become. And... And, and and you and I both know the joke is the president could have easily gone the other way. He intuitively was the other way. It took a while. They worked on him for about a year. Um, and they're like, shut up, Daniel. You're against Trump. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm the original Trump. You're for Kushner, which is the exact opposite. So could you explain a little bit, go into some of the detail of the origins? How in the world did a guy and, and look, you know, Trump has been all over the map on a lot of issues over the years. But when it comes to crime, you go back to his books, what he said in the 80s and 90s. He was consistent through and through on that issue all the way until December 2017. Um, and then even now, intermittently, he lapses back to saying they should get the death penalty, these people, whatever. So what how did we flip from like like Jesse Helms to Soros? In the White House, how did that happen? Well, it's funny that you mentioned 2017. Um, this is something, the connection that I made for the first time in the article that I, I published uh, recently that you mentioned, um, that I have dated. The first time that Trump broke bread with Koch brothers was in, I think, April 2017. Um, because, as you know, uh, the Koch brothers were pretty, pretty ardently opposed to everything that Trump was talking about doing when he, uh, for, you know, as part of his platform. Um, and then in about, I think, April-ish, 2017, they meet. Um, things go pretty well. Right after that is around the time that Sebastian Gorka quit from his post in the administration. And he, he made that ominous warning that there are forces that do not support the MAGA promise are ascendant in the White House. And I think What's interesting is that going forward from that time, you see the growth 
of Coke influence in the administration. And with that growth came Coke policy on things like crime. Uh, the Coke network has been funding uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation's project that's called Right on Crime. It's, based, it's, a, it's a project that is dedicated to uh, crime reform, police reform, and prison reform uh, that is antithetical to Trump's tough-on-crime promises. And I think that TPPF's influence, and, and the CEO of TPPF until recently was Brooke Rollins, until she left her post there and joined the administration, uh, first in the Office of American Innovation, which Kushner ran, and now as the head of domestic policy chief, which is the principal form that the president uses to consider domestic policy, so that, that's a big problem. Um, so my view is that basically after this meeting with the Koch brothers, it seems like Kushner got really close to a Koch guy named Mark Holden, who is, I think he's a, the senior vice president of Koch Industries. And the two of them immediately saw eye to eye, Jared Kushner and Mark Holden, they saw eye to eye on uh, criminal justice reform. And they started working together. Um, and the, the fruit of their work came to us as the First Step Act. Um, but through, I, I really think Rollins was instrumental in this, uh, in all, in all of this, because the Texas Public Policy Foundation is, it's basically bankrolled by Coke Industries, and it has a, a with Rollins comes the entire network of, of Coke things and policy, and I, I think that this is how the White House has made this turn from tough on crime to soft on crime. Through this, re and it is really nebulous. You know, like it's really easy to get lost in this this bag of snakes because there's so much money involved. There's so many uh, different entities involved. There's so many different projects involved. I can't there's keep a lot of moving track. Parts. I, I am. I, I mean, like for every one of me who writes on crime from the right, I mean, there's practically only one. <laughs> I'm glad it's nice to have company now. Um, it was kind of lonely in the water. I mean, there's there's there must be thousands of these dudes. I mean. You you Google anything, and all these organizations will come up, and they just flood the zone. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah, the, 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 this is another huge problem. I mean, um, people accuse the Republican Party of being you know the party of the rich, and in some ways that's true. It's definitely the corporate class party. Um, but it, I mean, it's it, it. Everyone knows that the Democrats, the left, they're the ones with all of the money, and and. And now to make every, you know to make things even better for us, you've got uh, people like uh, the Coke Industries working with uh, these, like the CEOs of Amazon and Apple and eBay, people that are pushing for you know um, progressive abortion policy, people that are pushing for gun control, people that are pushing pushing for either getting rid of borders or simply legalizing mass immigration. Now you have so-called conservative donor groups like Cokes working with them all towards the same end on everything from crime to, um, to abortion. And they ha now they have basically a channel, uh, like a direct line to the administration to, as a policy shop. And you're saying this is how we not only saw like the so-called right-leaning jailbreakers, but all the Hollywood dudes and even, um, even Al Sharpton evidently had some sort of line that he at least said that Trump took his call. Um, it is just so so here's what i don't understand i get it that the legislation was too nuanced for him 
they said, oh, it's low-level people, you'll get the black vote and whatever. You know, they got him into that whatever. Um, Politico claims he does um, regret it, uh, but, you know, who knows? But what I don't understand is one thing Trump does understand is rioting. Okay, this is, you know, that was it was too subtle because that was the problem. A lot of what I was reporting was too subtle. You ha- actually have to follow these cases of crime going up, where it's going up, how it's going up, in what way the repeat gun felons, repeat drug offenders that are really doing the other things. You really have to study criminology to understand this. But this is like in your face. If you would have told me that you would have worse riots than you had under Obama, under Trump, and it would get this far where they are literally setting up checkpoints, blocking not just roads, but interstate highways, and just do it. I mean, and and Trump, beyond what he did to secure the area around the White House and the Capitol, which even then took a little bit too long, I would have told you you're crazy. I mean— you know, I had a lot of concerns about Trump. Unfortunately, and I say this with a lot of sorrow, a lot of them turned out to be true. But I turned, when, when, when Cruz was defeated that night in Indiana, I turned to a colleague and I said, look, you know what? At least I can take jailbreak off my plate, you know, because I have too many issues. It's like, that's done with, okay? Like, and it, it's so sad looking back because I, I, I thought for sure he was always consistent on that. What is the psychology behind the president now? Are they convincing him that somehow it's better for him just to let this sit? Yes. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm, you know me, I'm not an apologist. I'm not going to excuse his bad choices, but I really think that somehow he's been convinced that cracking, using the military to crack down on the riots will hurt your reelection chances, which frankly is really cynical. You know, if there's a GOP strategist that's going to say that to my face, you know, we can't stop looting and murder and mayhem because that'll hurt, you know, your chances for, for re-election. That, that is so cynical. Um, it, people, should be, people should be really angry about that. And, they, and regular people, Trump voters, should, and they, in my view, they have to be angry at the conservatives who have been basically parroting that line. That's coming from the White House. It's, it, that line is coming from uh, Brooke Rollins, Jaron Smith, and, and Jared Kushner in particular. If you recall, Tucker Carlson named them specifically on, I think, two segments on his show. That they're urging him to stay his hand against the riots because it might appear racist to, to crack down on lawlessness. And, you know, that, that's really going to hurt his, his chances with the minority vote. And I guess the suburban moms or something. I don't know. It's so cynical and so ridiculous that it almost it's surreal. Um, it really is. It's also very racist, too, because the implication is that every black is is a looter. And the reality is, you know, no one's talking about getting 51 percent of their vote. I mean, even Jared. I mean, what they're talking about is maybe getting five, seven percent. Who are those five, seven percent? Those are the black business owners that are freaking, I mean, it burned down and, and, and everything. I mean, but also from the lockdowns and that's how you reach them. The notion that they want this is just, that is also very cynical. It is. It is extremely cynical. And there's, there's that video that people like Ann Coulter were circulating of that black woman who's, I, I think her place of work was destroyed. Um, and she is just inconsolable. It, it, so if you, like you said, if you want the minority vote, the, the, these are the people that are going to vote for you when you protect them from from lawlessness. Like it's it's a no brainer that 
you know, decent people will rally around law and order. But the the strategy that's coming out of the White House, it's so I think part of it is that these are people that will never really have to live with the consequences of the stuff that they're foisting on us. Like, do you think that people like Kushner or Rollins will, you know, do they live in a place like Minneapolis or St. Louis? No, of course not. So it's fine for them. You know, like uh, people just, this is the price that we have to pay, right? Like murder, mayhem, that's just the cost of getting three more, 3% of, of the electorate more. And that 3% is evidently people that are turned off by law and order. So I guess like, I guess we're trying to, to win the felon vote um, with Trump's advisors. Well, now. he literally so. said that, you know, he said that Jared, you could look it up if you, I, I don't think it's in your article, but in Florida, when they, when the courts, of course, the courts get involved, felons voting. And he, he said in, um I think it was Jackson Hole, Wyoming, they had a GOP retreat there, donor retreat. That's where he said in Florida, um, yeah, they're gonna they're they're natural Republican voters. I mean, I, I, and he would know because I guess he's a natural Republican voter his whole life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just this whole thing is so Orwellian. We got to run, but I want to just close this up, bringing this to the future, where you talk about at the end of your article a lose lose election. One of the things that just drives me batty with with all my colleagues in this business is they're obsessed about elections, but not about every day between those two years, those hundreds of days where every day there's an opportunity to actually affect the purpose of the election, especially if you win and you're in power, and to make the right play calls and the budget bills and engage when the you know Trump is you know signaling he's going to sign a terrible bill, force him to veto it, and 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 they're no no nothing nothing. So we got to win the election, and I'm thinking like, well. If this is what a first term is, I'd hate to see what a second term is, which usually turns out, you know, second terms of GOP presidents don't turn out too well um, for a number of reasons. And and my concern is that, you know, people are acting that, that basically I'm worried about this, that what Trump's presidency is, is the equivalent of holding out a football as if he's Tom Brady. I'm going to make a really auspicious play and I'm going to kick your butts. But then he like sits there with the ball out and sits there and sits there. So on the one hand, the perception that he's going to be like Tom Brady elicits a very, very ferocious blitz and it activates the defense and they, they come at you. So then you really do have to make the play because if you don't, you're going to get sacked and lose 30 yards and you'll be worse off than you were when you didn't have possession of the ball. And what my concern is now, when you look at the lockdown tyranny, it was biblical. You look at the riots, it's biblical. You look at the reverse Jim Crow going on in this country, it's biblical. And under, if this were occurring under Hillary Clinton, you, I mean, you, you would have our side activated. But the problem is it's, it's kind of weird because, like, we need a revolution. Oh, well, your guy is kind of the top dog. Well, it's like the county executive said I can't, you know, uh, the, the district judge said I can't do this. I mean, like, like on the one hand, the elections, you know what I mean? Like, the elections are everything. Like, we're all going to die. This is the most important election. If Trump wins, we'll be saved. If not, we're going to die. We can't go another election, even though they say that every election. But then on the other hand, what do you mean, Daniel? Uh, Trump can't do anything. The governors, uh, the, the courts. Uh, so then, I mean, which one is it? Right. And you're, you're not even, or they're not even looking about what comes next. Do you think that there won't be riots if Trump is reelected? 
And we know now what Trump does during riots when he listens to his advisors. That is nothing. So are we ready for four more years of this? And in response to the riots, what we're getting right now is appeasement. Kushner is already talking about pushing uh, no cash bail reform. There's like there's I, I'm hearing that there is already like police reforms around the pipeline. So Democrats are saying defund the police. Republicans are saying, well, don't defund it. Just weaken it to, a, you know, to pander to, to a particular dem- uh, demographic of voters that are not going to vote for us anyways. Um, so we're not like we should be really thinking about if Trump is reelected, knowing what we know now, when he listens to the people around him, do you think that the next four years will, will be better? And the answer is they won't. And in my mind, the most important thing from here until November, and it needs to happen every day, is that his base needs to activate against the, the administration in a way. Like, it, it, he needs to be afraid that unless you start listening to the people that voted for you, we're going to stay. We're not going to vote for Joe Biden. We're going to stay home because there's no reason to vote for you because you're not listening to it. You're, you're actually taking us for granted. You think that we're like a hostage to you. And I mean, that's what Kushner says. But, but where he, will they go? Here's the problem that, that's very well said. But here's the problem I always run into. It's like it's a never it, it's almost like the lockdown. So you know how no matter what data we would show and what we would have, like we're going to die if we don't do lockdown. And then we have lockdown and they die anyway. And there's no better result. And, you know, like Cuomo said, you know, 65 percent of those who died were locked down anyway. So the whole thing was a fraud. But you can never prove or disprove a negative. So what they always say is, well, it would have been worse if we didn't have lockdown. So no matter how bad things get, even though objectively we have objective data on fiscal, on culture, on national security, on certainly immigration and crime is worse than it was four years ago. But it would have been worse had the Democrats been in charge. This is the game they keep playing. And how do we break through that? I think just we just have to be persistent. We have to keep hammering away. And like you said, um, there's really not a lot of people that are talking about the things that we are talking about. And the fact that we're talking about them now, the fact that you have people like Michelle Malkin, who are now at Newsmax talking about these things. I think that there is definitely a mood shift that's happening right now where you have more of these high profile pundits who are um, people that are staunch Trump advocates who are really starting to get frustrated. I think John Nolte at Breitbart published a piece uh, recently, and he, he said that the polling trends for Trump are terrible. No, and he all says the polls are pre- wrong. Trump's going to win all 50 states. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it, I mean, it matters because Nolte is one of those guys who will always defend Trump. And here he is saying, look, guys, he actually says that, uh, look, I know we all hate polls and I hate polls too, but the trends are pretty bad. And, and part of, he actually blames part of it on like the difference between what Trump says and what he does. Because also part of it is he's owning what he is antithetical to his message. In other words, like there's one thing if we really had a lockdown of immigration, but not a lockdown of Americans, of course, and we had that stuff and we had the law and order. And we so people would see we would see the benefits. Whereas here, it's like you're getting the virulent opposition to Trump, but then the opposition is succeeding in getting their policies. So what do people have? The worst economy ever, the worst joblessness, the worst infringement on civil liberties, the worst um, anarchy, anarchy and tyranny, both kind of at the same time, actually. So it's like you, you, you could defend and you could say the governors, the courts and this and that. You could come up with every excuse you want. 
you know, I, I and and look, we get it. The GOP needs a hundred seats in the Senate, four hundred thirty-five in the House. Um, every district, you know, all ninety district courts, um, all all thirteen circuits, all um, you know, fifty governors and three thousand county governments. We get it, but you know. At some point, somehow the Democrats seem to manage to make it work, even with just control of one branch and even just control of a few states. And, you know, they they managed to make it work. And I think what it really boils down to is like Trump's veto pen. He could have demanded each time, at least if you're going to capitulate on certain things on crime on this demand stuff on sanctuary cities but nothing i'm not even talking about like the ending birthright citizenship and you know really reducing legal immigration like yeah that was never going to happen under this administration but i mean i'm talking about like you know the the things i say with uh um sanctuary cities and i think this is a very important point and maybe you should write about it one day that objectively trump didn't create sanctuary cities i understand that that was a response to him but at the end of the day, they have tripled. At the end of the day, they have worked. At the end of the way, they get away with murder. At the end of the day, ICE's interior enforcement is down 60% over Obama's levels. Outcomes have to matter. Now, there's a lot you can do on that, where you got to start pushing back against the courts. You're accused of doing it anyway, so actually do it. you got to start fighting on those budget bills to actually have defund pr- provisions in it. And, you know, this is the thing. And, and, and look... The states begged for money. He gave them hundreds of billions of dollars for free with no conditions. Adamantly so. Beat up Thomas Massey for opposing it. I mean, I just like, this is the point, I guess, that the options aren't Trump or Biden. There's a third option. Pressure Trump to be Trump every day. Um, You know, if you have a voice, uh, you know, you and I voting, I live in Maryland, voting is meaningless. (laughs) It doesn't affect anything. But we see from the left a very small group of anarchists are changing the world. I mean, you know, this nutty idea of being pro-criminal, which, um, you know, I, I, I saw you, you you got on this on Twitter and, and, and I'm all over this as well. This new shtick of Trump and the GOP outlefting the left like, hey, you see, Joe Biden, you know, you hate the blacks. Uh, you, you actually passed the crime bill in 1994. Like rather than hitting him on what he believes now, it's like. Dude, maybe the fact that even people like that supported this stuff until a few years ago might be an indication yeah. how much this has gone off the rails. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the there's I think a tweet from GOP's official Twitter bragging about the First Step Act, and yeah, and I just the first thing that came to my mind was the uh, a gang member, a Latin Kings gang leader, who murdered someone basically right after he was released by the First Step Act. And that's, you know, that's just one example. And, and, and really what mainstream like Republicans are doing, like you said, is they're attacking old Democrat tough on crime policies. And it just blows your mind. You know, it's like we're owning the libs by becoming the libs or in some ways becoming worse than them. Because we want a cheap ephemeral talking point. So like, you know, rather than doing the hard work and really demonstrating, no, you are harming everyone else and actually most prominently black victims of crime. There's a lot of very strong things you could say on that. But I mean, they want the the cheap talking point like, you know, the left defines the landscape. So we'll just try to play in their game. And I feel like Trump has bought into that where um, Trump Trump is like Texas. You know, everything is bigger. He wants to do everything bigly. So he says he's going to bigly oppose them. But then once the party folds and the narrative is such, he wants to do it big. So, you know, I'm going to do jailbreak bigly. I'm going to do 
Amnesty Bigley, and uh, you know, we're we're out of time. I'm just going to leave you with this parting question. You know, any week now, it could be as early as Monday. If not, then it's certainly going to be within no more than really two two and a half weeks at most. You're going to have the DACA decision come down from the Supreme Court. Now, if there's any sanity, you would believe you'd have at least five votes to say, like, dude, like, of course it's unlawful, and you certainly don't have to continue it. Um, you and I both know the same GOP that had control, trifecta control for two years, didn't use any point of leverage to push, push a single piece of true immigration reform. You know, they're going to be, I mean, they're going to like pee in their pants. They're going to lose their, I don't care if there's coronavirus in every corner of that Capitol Hill. I don't care if there's riots. They'll drop even the anti-police bill that they're working on with Tim Scott to pass DACA, a DACA fix, a DACA fix. I mean, that thing will be passed in 48 hours. How do you see that playing out with the base? And do you see that being the final straw uh, that breaks the camel's back, or will the president find a way to deflect from that like he usually does and give people some morphine to chew on? I hope and think that it should infuriate his base because it flies in the face of both his immigration platform and his uh, law and order platform. Amnesty is rewarding lawbreaking. That, that's stop. That full stop right there. So I think that for a lot of people, and I'm already seeing, I'm already seeing this in the comments of my articles and on Twitter and elsewhere, people are saying, this is the last straw for me. So I think DACA is going to be the last straw for a lot more people. So I think that if we want to prevent that from happening, we need to circle the wagons and focus fire on the administration's bad choices for its own good, like you said. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, and that's the thing. Back him when he's when he's do, doing good. But um, and, and you see you see what a movement is. You look at Kavanaugh which in itself is a false flag, but, you know, at least, you know, the, he was unjustly accused and every single person just was on message, rigorously had an agenda every day and it worked. But, you know, you almost never see that. Um, folks, I mean, th- this is the type of discussion we're going to have in the show. The people you don't see on cable news, Pedro Gonzalez, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for your insights. Keep up the good work. You can check out his work at American Greatness. Follow him on Twitter. We are way out of time. Folks, until tomorrow, stay safe and stay knowledgeable.